This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, a small conference event for AEC professionals and technology providers to discuss industry trends and ideas together. It's put on by the fine folks at Avail. Learn more about the upcoming invite-only event happening in the spring of 2024 in New York City during this episode. This episode of the Troxel Podcast is made possible with support from ArcIT. Are you tired of standard IT services that miss the mark? Choose ArcIT for specialized, proactive IT management, BIM support, and robust data security tailored for architects. Whether you're a team of 10 or a growing firm of 50-plus, ArcIT understands the architecture industry and will empower your unique creative vision to enable you to do your best work. Embrace a technology team that enhances, not hinders, your design process. Visit GetArcIT.com for your free IT assessment and start transforming your firm and your tech experience today. That's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. Before we dive into today's episode, I have a small but significant request. If you enjoy these episodes, could you please subscribe to the Troxel Podcast on both YouTube and in the audio podcast form on your preferred platform? Your subscription is incredibly valuable in supporting my efforts. Producing this podcast demands significant resources and time, and I genuinely hope you find it enriching for yourself and valuable for the AEC industry. Here's why it matters. Subscriber numbers directly influence my ability to attract better sponsors and high-profile guests. Both of these matter. A larger audience makes this podcast more appealing to them, which in turn enriches your listening experience. So if you haven't subscribed, I encourage you to do so. It's free and a great way to support Troxel. And remember, not just YouTube, but please subscribe also in your favorite audio podcast. It's equally important. Besides subscribing, there are two more ways you can support the show. You can now make a one-time donation at trxl.co slash donate or consider becoming a member. To learn more about the perks of membership and to join, simply click on one of the subscribe buttons on trxl.co and choose that option. Your support is crucial for the sustainability of the show, and I deeply appreciate it. Okay, in this episode, I welcome Phil Reed. Phil is the CEO and co-founder of Reed Thomas, a global BIM and VDC consulting group and go-to market startup advisor. In 2020, Reed Thomas founded the AEC Leadership Retreat, an annual event that occurs in the fall focused on developing good leadership skills for people in the high-stress, low-control AEC industry. And I'll have more to say about this in the near future, but now I want to bring your attention to a couple of links that I've put in the show notes for Phil's upcoming AEC Acoustics Retreat, which is a new addition to that fall series and happening at the end of April. So for now, I'll just say that I'm planning on being there, and I hope you'll consider it as well. Again, check out the links for more information and for registration in the show notes to find out more about the AEC Acoustics event. For this one, Phil and I met up in the Denver airport. I flew in from Oregon and he flew in from North Carolina to meet in the middle and have an in-person conversation for this episode, which was really fantastic. 
because of where we ended up finding a place to record. There's no video for this one, but you'll hear more about that once we get into the conversation. I've also decided to split this up into two parts, one for this week and another next week, because that way I think there's a better chance you'll get the whole picture. It's literally peppered with little golden advice nuggets throughout and has become one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. In part one, we discuss Phil's personal journey from seminary to architecture, his experiences in AEC tech over the last few decades, the value of an architect, advice for students interested in pursuing architecture, advice for those thinking about starting their own firms, investing in tools versus buying toys, the importance of systematizing processes, a look ahead at the future of the industry, and more. I do regret not having the wherewithal to get a picture of us while we were in our very public recording studio when we were in Denver, but I'm confident there will be more chances in the near future to memorialize the value of in-person communication like this episode. So until then, please enjoy this audio recording of my wide-ranging conversation with Phil Reed. Cheers. Cheers. Why don't you explain where we are? We're at the United Lounge, East Concourse B, third level, Denver, Colorado. And you you know this place, like the back of your hand, it sounds like. Yeah. Like with that kind of an experience, <laughs> I'm like, we're in the United Lounge. And, and no, you, you took it three levels <laughs> deeper than that. So you fly a lot. You get to know where places are and areas of refuge. Right. Yeah. As much as refuge as this actually as is. Can be. Yeah, we couldn't get it. They, they used to have meeting spaces in the lounge. And then the new design got rid of all of the conference rooms because businesses would fly in executives and they would bar the conference room. But now uh, that's gone. Yeah. Mon so, they yeah. would just had they would monopolize it. So it wasn't. The alternative was Weston at the end of the airport. You could walk to it from here. But they wanted like $1,000 a day to get yeah. a conference room. And I said, no, we'll have to do that. We'll just spend $300 and get a regular room. And then I thought, well, maybe the United Lounge and then we'll get food too. Yeah. Great. I love it. And so we've made an investment to get here, <laughs> right? We have, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to we, do it in person, I, you, I saw you at AU in the booth. Yeah, and at the Enscape booth. And uh, you were generous to say, you know, let's, let's do it in person because oh, the conversations yeah. are so much better. They are. And you can talk about other things outside of the conversation, outside of the formality. Yeah, it's the, um, I think conversations can be too transactional. Mm-hmm. And the value of just getting to know someone, catching up. How have you been over the last three years? We haven't seen each other. I think it shows some earnestness and it, it yeah. shows attention to detail. So we've met in the middle. I'm on the West Coast. You're yeah, on the East Coast. Yeah, I didn't want Coast. to go all the way to Medford. I thought, we'll just, I can fly and fly out and you well, can do the same. And it's such a small airport that it costs a lot of money to get in and out of there. Right. So. Oh, really? Yeah, because Medford is just... I don't know. There's five gates, six gates. It's very small. And right. so not a lot of airlines fly direct there anyway. So, well, you, this, this so I was going to fly out thing. and I looked at it and I thought, well, it's expensive, but it's direct to Denver because mm -hmm. it was like yeah. Charlotte, Denver, Denver, Medford. And I thought, oh, we'll maybe just each meet halfway and then I wouldn't spend a hotel. I'll just right. fly back to Charlotte tonight. And you'll yeah. fly back to 
Oregon. So we're spending the day in the airport in the United Lounge yeah. and flying in and flying out. So if anybody's wondering why we're hearing the background noise. It's not artificial. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a backtrack. This, yeah, this is not a, tra- a backing track, <laughs> a conversational backing track of room noise. Right, right, right. right. So It's uh, authentic lounge noise. So we had yeah. breakfast together here at yeah. the lounge, which was nice. And we had a chance to actually get to know each other a little bit before. Yeah. We Talk about other hit stuff. record, and and I, then you threatened me because you said, "Oh, we have to. You're, don't we're, we have to talk about this again?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, you're gonna have to repeat all of this because yeah. it was all. This is what the podcast is. It's it's like people get to be the yeah. in the room mm-hmm. with the people having the conversation. I mean, that's that's why I do this, and I mean, I think it's that important because in order to facilitate real conversation, you have to allow digressions to happen." Because that's how you get to know that's people. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's not just talking points. It's not just the agenda, the outline. It's it's the other stuff. It's the in between stuff yeah. that that really I think the diversions are important. Yeah. The context is important. The reasons are important. So yeah, it's not just a list of questions. Answer ten questions and thank you. Yeah, I never send out questions ahead of time. I I rarely have it even structured that way. So if somebody asks for I don't them, know what we're going to talk about. I couldn't. Yeah, it's well, it's going to surprise do me. Do you know the I'm... next word that's going to come out of your mouth? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We know. No. no. I, yes. I think that's super interesting. We yeah. don't even know. And so that's but that's an authentic conversation, I think, for both of us because we'll both have input based on what we chatted about over breakfast. We'll both have input, and then that allows it to be tra- more than just a transactional meeting. It, yeah. it allows it to be a, a connection. I think a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So maybe you can give a little bit of your backstory for people who don't know it, because I think you establishing kind of your trajectory throughout mm. the AEC technology industry is important just to establish this, because I don't think we're going to talk about that too much today. <laughs> Actually, I think we're going to talk about the softer stuff that yeah, we yeah. talked about before. But I, but I love the idea of just people telling their story to kind of kick it off. So. As quickly as possible, it was entirely accidental. I went to seminary for four and a half years and got out, started picking up any odd job. I worked in radio broadcasting, television for a while because I studied communications and literature and then um, taught math for at a school for troubled youth and realized I can't change the world. I'm not really, I'm just a one person. I got to get serious about career kind of mindset, Mm. but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Went back to the same small town. Um, I really music and, and music was a first passion, but I just couldn't figure out how to pay bills with other musicians. And I went back to the same small town, started picking up odd jobs as much as possible and took a class at a local technical college just out of curiosity, this thing called CAD. And um, when was this? Loved it. Oh, 98, 99. Okay. And yeah, the small technical college had this CAD program. Ended up meeting someone. I took a job at a summer camp so I could fish in their private lake and ended up meeting who's (laughs) now my wife, 30 years. Um, We went to New Zealand, got married. I started working as a commercial artist because I had had an artistic background. I mean, I you know, it wasn't all just computers and technology. And then came back to the U.S. to study architecture on the condition that I wouldn't borrow money to do it. And So you um, set that condition with yourself, with your wife? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, it's like, 
I can't go back you, to you school. You set some ground rules around. And I couldn't decide, Evan. It was, it was I kind of narrowed it down. I wanted something that I could do anywhere in the world for my entire life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like that was part of what I wanted to choose. I think it, architect, <laughs> architecture is interesting there because like Can. Yeah. You, you you definitely could just sit at a desk for the rest of your life. Like you, people do. They, 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 there's the joke in the field is like you die at the drafting table. Like the architects don't even well, retire. I anything, I narrowed it down to law, medicine, or architecture. So all professional. Well, something you do your whole life. Like yeah. it's not going to physically break you. Yeah, right. But and, and intellectually, it'll always be curious. Yeah. And I, I sort of thought, okay, medicine, you can't really do that anywhere because you'll have to get certified if you want to, you know, go somewhere else in the world. So I narrowed it down to law or architecture. And my roommate at seminary went and studied law. And I was back in the U.S. for a wedding and we were catching up. And I, and I was studying for my, what is it, the not the Metcat or the LSAT. Mm-hmm. And I was also looking at architecture schools and uh, Dave was doing great. He'd started families, buying a house. And I said, I've narrowed it down to architecture or, or law. What do you think? And he said, do architecture. And I was surprised. Like, yeah. He had all the accoutrements. If you would have success. asked an architect, they would have said, do law. Do law. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, what do you, what do you mean? And he goes, I get up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror and I think I'm going to have to ruin someone's life to make a living. Oh, wow. And, yeah, architecture's uh, not like that. Yeah. So he said, He said actually, and his dad was a contractor, and we worked together in the summer in the okay. construction space, and he said, I wish I'd gone into architecture because I could make things instead of tear things apart. Mm. So with that, I thought, okay, well, that makes it simple. I'll just do architecture. It's noble. Um, I applied and got accepted to Taliesin with just East my technical. East or West? Well, they transitioned back and forth. And I was so excited. This would have probably been... 93-ish. What was that application process like? Like, what did you have oh, to supply to them? it was a them? phone call. It was a faxed application. It was pay money. It was show them evidence of earnestness in terms of uh, technical ability. Yeah. And I had a portfolio from school and also some hand designs that I'd done. And I was so excited, you know, coming out of seminary, you know, you're kind of in one religious cult. And you're going into another religious cult. So Everything's that was okay. a cult, yeah, yeah right, by the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't worried about that. And I, and I thought it'd be interesting to be part of that historic context. Mm. And uh, then it turned out at that time, so this was in the early 90s, if you were married, your spouse has to attend. And you couldn't work outside of the fellowship. So it was effectively an apprenticeship for seven years. Right. And then at that time, it wasn't accredited. Yeah. So Justine didn't really want to go. I didn't want to borrow money to do it. Yeah. It was seven and a half thousand dollars per person per year. So I thought, well, still I'm borrowing fifteen thousand dollars for seven years. Yeah. And you can't work outside the fellowship. So I was really just heartbroken and realized that I couldn't. Sounds do it. untenable, right? Because if you have to dedicate yourself to that, you basically have to have all that money up front. There's no other way to do it. So I just finally had to just rescind my application and I was just really heartbroken. And um, ended up looking at a map and going, okay, I've got family in Asheville and family in Raleigh and family in Fayetteville. Where is an architecture school near that? And it just turned out that there was a University of North Carolina at Charlotte had mm-hmm. an architecture program. And um, I wasn't particularly passionate about going there, but it turned out to be a really serendipitous move. It was a great program. I keep in touch with students that I graduated with. It's always stressful being an, I, I was probably 28, 29 when I started 
school there and I'd already had this prior degree. I'd already worked in when I when I first came back to the US to start to pursue going to architecture school. I was working in an engineering firm and because of a technical background. I couldn't design well, I could do we were we were a civil engineering firm, so I could design, but mm-hmm. I wasn't doing severe calculations or accountable for any of that. I was really transitioning. That was the I was trans transitioning someone who'd drawn something by hand, usually sketched by hand that needed to be in the computer. So I realized I wouldn't have to borrow money to go to UNCC. Uh, I had a prior degree, so I only had to take studios. And so that was that was in the fall of 94 I started, and I started working for an engineering firm in Charlotte. And by the end of the third year, they started a master's program. So I jumped into that. It was a two-year's master's program if you had a prior degree. So I wrapped up my four-year degree while kicking off my master's degree the same year. And then in five years, I had a master's degree and an undergraduate degree. And so that's where yeah, it just was, it, it was accidental. But I think if for anyone who's in high school that wants to study architecture, the big lesson is I would probably tell them not to study architecture as an undergraduate. Go get a technical background and work while you're in school. So you have enough time you have enough time for friends, but not too much time. You have enough time to drink, but not too much time. <laughs> but get an undergrad. Like in high schools now, you can start early college and get yeah. a technical degree right. and start picking up your design tools and learning how to use them and solve problems early and then study something else at college as an undergraduate. Any STEM-related class, like computer science, psychology, engineering, and then go back and get your master's degree in architecture. And you're facing and work while you're in school. Work as much as you can. Work part time during the year, full time during the summer. Get a job at a firm and learn how to solve problems. This episode is made possible with support from Avail. In a world where precision meets creativity, where every line drawn holds the power to innovate, people like you are shaping the future. But let's face it: in the realm of design, the unknown is your least favorite companion. You've been stranded on the island of inefficient software, lost in the fog of endless searching for the right content. It's time to embark on a new journey, a journey to clarity, efficiency, and design excellence. It's time to get off that island and away from the unknown. Introducing Avail, the beacon in your design odyssey. Say goodbye to the daunting 10 to 20 minutes wasted per search, the costly interruptions in your creative flow. With Avail, your team will zip through content discovery, focusing more on designing and less on searching. Imagine a world where you can stop constantly fighting the costly fires caused by pulling content from past projects, building from scratch, or relying on personal libraries. Avail isn't just a tool, it's a revolution for AECO firms. Organize, manage, and navigate your project information with a leader that's proven in reliability, relatability, and success. Join the ranks of the top AECO firms who've already chosen Avail. In just 30 days, you could deploy Avail and witness a dramatic reduction in costly design errors. Whether it's your first CMS or you're considering a switch, there's someone you should meet. Will Rouse, your guide to all things Avail. Schedule an appointment and explore Avail's capabilities, onboarding programs, and professional services. Don't let your designs be clouded by inefficiency. Clear skies are just a click away. Go to getavail.com slash stranded and book a meeting with Will to start your Avail journey today. Avail, where your best design is just a search away. My thanks to Avail for supporting this episode of the Troxel podcast. And now let's get back to the conversation. 
Do you feel like you have that advice now because of the time period that we're living in with computing? Like, it seems to me right now with computer science, especially, mm. that's got to be an enormous amount of people going through that. I think it that. gives you a well-rounded. You could you could do software for so many. It's it's like a it's kind of a foundational thing now. Whereas when I was in school, it wasn't. This was. Like I, I went straight oh, yeah. out of high there was school. No, into there was not much software in in the eighties when I was first in college. Right, right? It wouldn't right. It wouldn't have been a thing. Right. I think the importance is, as soon as you can start the rigor of learning how to solve problems and learning from experienced people as a young person. I don't know that you. I don't know that you're learning from experienced people in college. Yeah. And so working part time for a company that has to solve problems and be polite to the client. And particularly with small firms, you have to do everything. Yeah. If you're a young person with a technical background uh, in SketchUp and Revit and and polite, you're going to get pulled into meetings with the customer. The owner's going to say, hey, I need you to open up that project drive and model. and come in here and drive the model. Yeah. So you're going to be part of those conversations. And you're going to get to absorb what happens in that room and learn so much faster mm -hmm. Yeah. being in that situation. Yeah, and university has a, I think there's a couple of challenges. We're at an inflection point with how people learn to do things at a time when information is racing to the cost of zero. Uh, university has become irrecoverably expensive in yeah. terms of student loans. Right. So if you can protect yourself by not borrowing money whilst you go to school, yeah. you'll graduate with probably four or five years of real world experience and then pick your grad school. Um, if you're from a disadvantaged background, that kind of portfolio is going to pay you in terms of scholarship. Mm. And now you'll get a, a great graduate diploma from a top-notch school. But for an undergraduate, I would just get a technical background while you're in high school or before you go to college and then start working for a firm. And get the experience of not being an employee but learning how to think as an employer. Because you have to – everybody gets to do everything at a small firm. Yeah. The, the whole idea of – architecture school is learning how to think about problem solving on the macro level uh like not usually in particular you know it's, right yeah right i i feel like it's it's kind of like weeding out non-problem solvers and problem solvers people who are up for the challenge versus people who are yeah. looking to get through something well, th there's the lack of constraints at university creates an artificial approach to design mm, problem that's solving. True, yeah. And I think when you have a client with a budget and a problem that yet to solve, you're trying to do it as elegantly as possible within budget and to be earnest. And I don't think that cheapens the design. Yeah. I think it actually you come up with really interesting solutions. Whereas, yeah. you know, early in architecture school, I would say the first three years is kind of like, yeah, you learn to make blobs, but you don't really learn how to make decisions. And your client doesn't have a budget. They're your professor and you're paying them. Yeah, yeah. They're so that part of it is kind of an unofficial, con it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an artificial construct. Mm. So if you're in that world where you're learning how to solve problems, I don't know that it's not necessarily going to be high design. I yeah. think a lot of small firms are actually doing really earnest, really good work and you might not have eight hours a day to work for a firm while you're in school. You might only have four hours a day, but you're gonna you're gonna be there at critical moments and you'll learn a lot. I I when I was going to UNCC, I was working full time, and I look back now because it, it was parts of it were a blur. I would get up at 3 a.m., 3:30 a.m. I would leave. I would drive to drive to South Park from the university area, start work at 4 a.m., 
eat lunch at 9 a.m. and then leave at noon to go home, eat lunch, well, eat breakfast at 9 a.m., eat lunch, uh, have a nap, and then be in studio by 2 o'clock. And uh, that was, I would, <laughs> I would start to fantasize about sleep by Tuesday or Wednesday. Like, yeah. oh, I just can't wait till I can sleep. But the advantage of that and not borrowing money was such that when Revit came out around the spring of 2000, I was able to, to take a chance buying a computer, learning how to use that tool. So by the spring of 2001, I was working for Revit Technology. And had I borrowed money, I don't think I could have taken that chance because you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, so having the freedom, when an opportunity comes along, you don't want to have to go off and pack your bags. You want to have the bags already packed. You want to be ready to go. And I kind of, I was still anxious about whether or not Revit would work out, um, you know, because I was full of hope and promise, but we were fighting an uphill battle. There were a lot of technology incumbents. But uh, the freedom of not, borrowing money means you can say yes to things that are important and no to things that aren't. A lot of us, I think we go to architecture school to learn how to become an employee, but not how to right. become an employer. Yeah. You know, professional practice is typically, a, you know, your your fifth year course, right? Or or and, it's entrepreneurial, entrepreneurism is not really, I, I completely agree. It's like you're going to go work at a big firm and this you're going to fill these jobs. It, and I think it, there's already a misalignment between what their stated goal is, is to teach mm. you to become a designer when the percentage of jobs in firms with that title are oh, there's very people in front of you, small. And there's few of them. And yeah, and the ladder already has four or five people on it ahead yeah. of you, right? And they're stomping at your hands <laughs> from above. So there, there's a big misalignment with, with the profession and academia. And I don't, I don't see a solution. I had, a pro I had one professor in five years. Uh, we had to track our time. And he would say, this is a four-hour task. This is an oh, eight-hour wow. task. And That uh, never came across our That was our fantastic. Because you can usually, if, if you have a limited amount of time, you don't have time to put it off, you know, and then you're up in studio all night. You're like, no, I have to do it right now, and I'm going to get to a good stopping point. And then we would have a discussion. And uh, that, was a, that was a good lesson. It's like you need to keep track of your time so your time doesn't become cheap. And uh, I don't know that architecture school... Maybe they've changed in the last 20 years where they're starting to, not, I don't want to say respect time, but sort of give people the mindset that you can't work 24 hours a day. I think that's changed you know, more studios, recently. Yeah. Working 40 hours a weekend over a studio yeah. is probably not healthy. Yeah. Like I would watch students have mental breakdowns yeah. and smash their models Same. and stuff like that. Light them that's, on fire in the courtyard. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a, if you're learning how to solve problems, including being polite to a customer. Mm -hmm. That's like a critical part of, of, of being successful as yeah. a business person. You have to show up. You have to be polite. Uh, you have to give them a good experience. You have to show earnestness. And I don't know that that's directly related to design it's, yeah. itself. So that's the, those are, so architecture school graduated in the spring of 99 and went to work in the architectural space, saw Revit in the spring of 2000 and was working for Revit Technology by this by February 2001. How did that happen right there? So is it that you bought the machine, you learned the software, and they saw that in yeah. motivation in you? No, well, I wanted to use it at the firm that I was at, and okay. I can distinctly remember the um, one of the owners saying, well, if we learn how to use this, uh, then we'll have to use this and AutoCAD and MicroStation. 
and I realized he didn't understand the, 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 the value of it. I'd committed myself to using the Macintosh platform while I was at university, but when I saw Revit in the spring of 2000, I went out and bought uh, what was a cheap workstation at the time called an e-machine mm -hmm. and put Revit 1.0 on it and started going through the little booklet that came with the CD. And I was starting, there, there were a lot of limitations in the software, obviously, at the time yeah. at that release. There was no site tool. Uh, well, there might have been a site tool, but it was limited in certain ways. So I started modeling sites as in-place geometries. And um, Revit had this, they would send out these periodic marketing emails with renderings. And my images were in there and no one had asked permission. <laughs> Or there was a guy that would call so me and go, 90. hey, this rendering that you sent, how did you do that? Because I, I ended up taking a project that we had done at this architecture firm all the way through documentation, then it never got built. And I took a copy of that home and started recreating it in Revit. And by doing so, oh, yeah. discovered every edge condition that Revit couldn't handle. Yeah. And then I had to start figuring out how to do it. So the first thing you do is say, well, there's a room tag or a wall tag. So now you're opening up a family editor and trying to create that artifact. Before I bought Revit, I was actually looking at Archicad and the local reseller. I had my pen out with the top of it clicked and the checkbook. I was going to write a check for Archicad plus the stair tool. I was like $7,500. And, um, and Mark said, hey, look, before you write this check, I just want to let you know we've kind of become friends. And there's this tool called Revit, and they've integrated the documentation. You might want to look at that before you make this purchase. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll look at I'll see what it, I was blown away when I Revit 1.0. Because for me, the, the uh, conceptual pieces that you really had to have were the main building components, uh, the content inside the building, and you had to be able to create instructions and you had to be able to organize that in a way where as much as possible it was all in one place. And so at that time, Autodesk had ADT, mm -hmm. MicroStation had Triforma J, mm -hmm. ArchiCAD had their tool, but all of them seemed to require exporting to documentation. And we were using MicroStation at that time. And the challenge was you would get the model to a point, you batch export to document, and the batch export wasn't fast. It might take an overnight. And then you'd have a meeting with a customer, you'd have red lines, and you'd start tweaking things in the documentation because the deadline might be that week and you don't have enough hours yeah. to keep exporting when things when changes occur. And so we'd submit for the deadline, and then we'd have to make this kind of existential decision of, do we go back to the model to pick up these red lines after the deadline passed? Or do, we just, or do we just keep start updating the drawings? Yeah. And so it was kind of this oh, yeah. schizophrenia totally. of... I'm using a model, it has all these advantages, but then I have to decouple from it because of the workflow. So what I saw with Revit, like early on, oh, I could put something on a sheet, open up the view on the sheet, move something, delete something, it would come out of a schedule, it would come out of a section if you deleted it from a plan. And I thought, well, that's a big fundamental, someone's finally nutted that out. So Revit, at that time, they were advertising for a lot of positions, and they had a technical expert. They wanted, like, a support person for the Mid-Atlantic, and I went up to interview. Uh, I interviewed with Steve Burry and I think Rob Macarini and Dave Heaton. And uh, after all the interviews for this position, they offered me the, that job, and I said, well, really, I don't want this job. <laughs> but I tell you what I think you should do. I said, the thing is, this job is like helping customers after things are broken. Why don't you have a team of people that go and work with a customer to kick projects off to keep 
the problems from happening occurring. <laughs> yeah. And they said, well, actually, we're going to create a team to do that. We're going to create a consulting group. It'll probably mean a lot of travel, but you'll go in the office, you'll kick the project off with a customer, and you'll work hands-on. Oh, it's like, that sounds amazing. And that's what I did. I started February 1st, 2001. Wow. And uh, every February 1st, I still call <laughs> Dave Heaton, nice. say thanks. And uh, to this day, we still have breakfast once a month online. Nice. Because he's up in Maine, retired. And uh, we just talk about anything and nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's good. That's cool. He taught me a lot besides just technology. It's yeah. great. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that was, a, that was a kickoff to working at Revit. And then within, within a year, I guess we were acquired April of uh, 2002 working for Autodesk. Autodesk, yep. yeah. And that's a rocket ship, right? Because they've got people everywhere in the world making sure that their solutions are being sold and supported. And Yeah. Yeah. I just recently had Marty Rosmanith on the yeah. podcast, and he told a little bit of the Revit Technology Corporation, you know, Charles River to Revit Technology yeah. Yeah. to Autodesk. And it is pretty fascinating to see the paths cross uh, from various perspectives. And I mean, back then when I was, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 97, I was using MicroStation also. Right. And that, that process that you explained. Triforma? Where, was that out? We yeah. used a little bit of that. It was MicroStation J, yeah. MicroStation 95. I think J came after 95, but it was available on the Mac back then. That's right. And yeah, yeah. Uh, there was there was a, another version of AutoCAD that actually ran on the Mac until it didn't uh, yep. anymore, right? Yep. <laughs> but I think I just think it's interesting when you talked about that process of kind of that fundamental decision that you have to make of where you're going to make the changes. And we all struggled with that. It's like, do I make them in the drawings? Do I go back to the... Do I do it on the sheets? Do I do it in the model? This was just the digital version of changing the dimension on the hand-drawn plans rather than yeah. redrawing it. And and so it was still kind of fundamentally, at some point, it broke. But architects were just... It worked, it, but it was so slow that you couldn't get your head around it. Yeah. So you had to choose two bad ways of doing something is not a fun choice. And then the mental overhead of just remembering where those changes were made... Because were they made here or there? Some were here, some were there. And I mean, it, it's actually not too different now in Revit when you don't have a power user behind. Right. And they're making a decision to draw something with detail lines or put a dummy tag in just to get through the, to the just deadline. Just through the drawings. But yeah. then the technical debt gets you accrue so much of it and you can't remember which way you hid that object or... Things like that, where like my wife struggles with this on a daily basis, and now she just goes to the forum and she says, "Is this even possible?" And she often finds out, "No, it's not even possible." Before she used to go through step by step by step to try to re figure it out to do it, and only to find out it wasn't possible at the end. Now she's like, "I just skip to the end, yeah, <laughs> just go there." But but we're still struggling with very similar problems over decades. I can't imagine how how difficult it will be for someone if you're going to learn how to use a tool really well. You have to learn what it doesn't do. Yeah. And early on, Revit didn't do a lot of things. Yeah. There was no railing tool. Uh, you actually use the curtain wall tool to make railings, which even now has great flexibility. Yeah. Um, I still use curtain walls for mezzanine levels because they contain space. Mm. And because you can slide those... Because uh, it's a wall, yeah. Yeah, because it's a wall. <laughs> and you can slide the balusters around because it's just a curtain wall. It's like yeah. sliding around a mullion. So it's like, actually, that was kind of flexible. Um, but the challenge now is... you. Back then, you could learn what Revit couldn't do very quickly. Now, it would take a long time to learn yeah. what Revit doesn't do. So you're, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of workarounds, but getting to the point where you know, am I 
should I just work around this right. or should I try to figure it out? I think c- coming up through the program, if to lack of a better word, but it was all about the challenge of finding the workarounds and, and figuring out workarounds yeah, and because elegant, yeah, yeah. we had to solve the problems. And so like I was going to school to learn how to solve problems and I was doing it also just to get the software to do what I wanted it to do. And I think there are a lot of great examples of software that does exactly what you want it to do. And yet there are so many that, that still don't, or there's programs like Revit that are 23 years old and mm. there's a lot of cruft in there, or, or there's things they can't advance because there's other pieces holding it back. Uh, and navigating that world of co- the constant changes, but also still having to figure out those workarounds in a world that expects we don't need to have workarounds. Software is super powerful nowadays. There's a, there's just a battle yeah, going there's on a, there. I, I think there's um there's an artifact of creating software that is almost irrecoverable in that you're you're creating software to speed up an existing process, mm-hmm. but then in doing so, the desire to create the thing that software allows changes, and now the software can't speed up the existing process. So in the case with Revit, if you're designing a fairly conventional building, it's kind of straightforward. Yeah. But then people aspire to not design conventional-looking buildings, and now yeah. it's not straightforward. Right. So on the, well, I mean, it wouldn't, this was, on the Trade Center rebuild, one of the design iterations had an external diagrid of stainless steel cabling. Mm -hmm. It was like a cable net structure. The structure ran up through the center of the building, and then there was was an outer rigging out the top of the building, and then the cable net was suspended from that. And the cable net was a series of diagonal stainless steel bundles. Now, when you cut that in plan, you're circular bundles are going to look like ellipsoids Uh and the documentation artifact was if we were drawing this in plan we would show those as circles yeah and there was an internal there was there was like this uh considerable discussion on how do we show circles in plan because when we cut plans out of geometry it's showing ellipsoids shows what's really there what's really happening so we were trying to create i think revit in a way and marnie might back back me up on this. Revit was a tool that was primarily designed to automate the documentation process. Yeah. It was also a modeling tool, but it was it was modeling in the service of creating yes. documentation. Uh-huh. And now I think the problem has moved on. It's gone from documentation and coordination to collaboration. Mm-hmm. And um, we haven't solved the collaboration part yet because right. now the tools that you want to collaborate with and Autodesk is making amends to figure this out, but you want to be able to use a Rhino model for yeah. your exterior. Um, but then, is it going to behave intelligently? You get the geometry, but you don't get the artifacts of space containment, and right. you have other challenges. And so, yeah, everything becomes a workaround. Now you're yeah. using a Rhino model for your exterior skin, but you have to cover everything in uh, in uh, room separation lines in right. order to contain space. So, yeah, the problem moves on, but the software is always trying to catch up. Yeah. So it's constant workarounds. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is made possible with support from Confluence. Picture this. October 2019, Lexington, Kentucky, the birthplace of Confluence, a place where tech leaders, AEC product developers, and practitioners came together for three transformative days. It was more than a conference. It was a confluence of ideas, discussions, and unforgettable social experiences. Since then, over 200 attendees have experienced the magic of Confluence. 
I've had the privilege of being part of three of these remarkable gatherings, two in Kentucky and one in Orange County, each one a melting pot of learning, collaboration, and camaraderie around a topic shaping our industry. And now we're thrilled to announce the next regional confluence event in April 2024 in the vibrant heart of New York City. This time, we dive deep into the realms of AI and machine learning, unraveling their mysteries and potentials in our industry. Are you interested in being part of this exciting journey to continue the conversation to shape the future? Visit the link in the show notes for more details. Confluence, where ideas flow, connections form, and the future of AEC technology is shaped one conversation at a time. My thanks to Confluence for supporting this episode of the Troxel Podcast. And now let's get back to the conversation. So, okay, so you left off with Autodesk. So what's happened since Autodesk or how long were you there? The kids were getting older and I'm not exaggerating. The last three years at Autodesk, I couldn't figure out how to do something else at Autodesk. And I kind of poked different areas to kind of move into technical sales to maybe move to another geo. And um, it was kind of like, I found later on through the back channels, it's like, no, no, hands off Phil. You can't, you can't have him. And so my stress was traveling 48 weeks a year. The last three years, it was at Autodesk, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, Getting to work with all of the firms I would have aspired to work for whilst in college, getting to work with them and not kind of for them, you know, having the high level relationship, being plugged in with all the hypos at these firms, trying to solve difficult technical questions. It was heady days, Hmm. but you come home Thursday night and uh, my oldest was probably about nine or 10 at that point. It's really starting to stress him out. And I couldn't figure out how to make the transition to do something else to stop traveling so much. Mm -hmm. So I, I, um, no bridges burned. I resigned. I took an, I took an opportunity, uh, as an, at an, as an executive at a large A&E firm and, um, found myself in a world of stress because now things start moving slow and start instead of managing technology you have to start managing people and i had no skill set for that so that was probably i don't know i I guess it was probably 2008 so maybe i was 43 ish and uh realized i'd made probably a terrible decision because i didn't know what the emotional cost of going into managing people was going to be like for managing technology. Cause I could happily stay up until the wee hours in a hotel room, trying to nut out a technical problem and then go to sleep happy. But you know, yeah. managing people. And, um, it was during the global financial crisis and things were stressful. It was a large firm, but various offices were having to lay people off. And I just felt like I was getting paid a lot of money to not know how how was I actually making the company money just right. going from meeting to meeting what, yeah. what was that like so that was very stressful um, and eventually I think I was graciously my job was eliminated so I was kind of graciously let go some of the people I worked for I still keep in touch with but it was it was very very stressful better part of almost probably three years yeah um, went into another startup and um, that was kind of a mixed experience but then by July 2013 what I saw Autodesk, the thing that I couldn't nut out, Evan, was that, so Autodesk is a, you know, multi-billion dollar software company. They have a lot of mouths to feed. And the consulting group, at that time, if I was going to come in and work in an office to kick a project off, and this is in the early 2000s, it was anywhere from 2400 to 5000 a day plus travel expenses. Hmm. 
And so I, w- I would kick off two or three projects at a time. That was fine. But that's, that's the edge condition of architecture firms that can afford that kind of overhead. Right. And I always thought, you know, 90% of the firms are less than 10 people. They need expertise yeah. in the moment that they need it. But how do you distribute that? You can't get it on an airplane. It doesn't scale. Yeah. And so in July of 2013, I reached out to my nephew, who I taught Revit to when he was probably in middle school. And he graduated from Southern Poly, did his undergraduate degree in architecture and an undergraduate degree in computer science. And then he also got his MBA. And he was working at his own consulting practice. He's very entrepreneurial. So Adam. he was a total slouch. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Slack ass. <laughs> and um, I called him and said, do you want to go into business together? And his next words were, what took it so long? <laughs> so we started a practice, a consulting practice with the intent of being a retainer-based service. Mm-hmm. So we're never going to work at risk. We're never going to chase money after the work's done. We're going to work with customers, set up retainers, and the moment they have a hard problem, we're going to help them solve it and charge in 15-minute increments. And that was July of 2013. Wow. We work with architecture firms that don't even know we're working on their projects because we're getting the information through the contractor. We're helping them solve building design problems. We don't do design, but we we do a lot of coordination work for contractors who've now outsourced their BIM teams. Yeah. Uh, we do a lot of best practice. We do a, lo- a lot of content creation. There are amazing firms w- of of one and two people where the owner says, this light fixture is amazing. Can you guys get this in my project by Monday? Yeah. And we'll say, yeah, just put a, you know, put a placeholder in your project and send us a photo. And a photo in a Google image search will show you what that manufacturer is. And you might even get a cut sheet so you can build that piece of content with enough information to get them moving forward. We have an architect, he's FAIA at, in Asheville, North Carolina, and he might just call Adam and say, this dang curtain wall is making me crazy. Yeah. And we'll go, Jeff, just sketch what you want, or can we jump on a web share? Show us what you want. Adam will get in the project and do the work and then get back out. I mean, it, it was we didn't exactly know how it would go in July 2013 because where, where Central Files lived was kind of ambiguous at the time. Sure. But now, the way that Autodesk has managed that, we yeah. can get access to a, a multitude of projects, get in on an as-need basis and get back out again. So is this a baseline requirement? Is that it is a Revit-based project no. for you guys? No. I mean, that's the one that I think the industry just will do whatever the contractor wants. Okay. The majority of use cases, it's Revit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think we have any other ARCHICAD or any other technology-based projects. But on the coordination side, the co- for the most part, the contractor might have a requirement about what tool they like to use to solve their coordination issues and to track them, mitigate them, and we'll just use whatever they want. So that was July 2013, and we helped some large, interesting projects stay successful. And then I realized with the network having worked for Revit and Autodesk, when I first heard about Enscape in July 2015, I thought, bullshit. You're like, why would anyone make a, a, a an easy button for rendering, not uh-huh. for architecture, if you had real time? Uh, you'd probably do it for the medical space or for some other industry with deeper pockets and went home, downloaded it, was blown away. Like that, it, it wasn't the best rendering, but it was so fast and it was so transparent. Yeah. Um, so I reached out to Thomas and Mortz, who were the founders at Enscape, and said, I know all the architects that will want to use this product. Yeah. And you guys don't understand the design workflow. You don't know how to use Revit. So let me take this around the world. And we, we set up a... 
kind of a oh, it was just a it was a revenue share for selling the software on the condition that I would also support it, that I would help in marketing efforts, that I would help in uh, you know, going to conferences. And so that I guess what it evolved into was a go to market relationship. Yeah. That other companies have since approached us for as well. It's like, hey, we're making this technology. It's 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 expensive for companies to go to market. And if you start hiring if you want to hire someone who's a, a rainmaker at a big software company, like let's say you're gonna hire someone from Autodesk who's a rainmaker and say, you know, all the customers help us go to market. Um, you're going to give them a lot of equity or you're going to give them a big salary, probably as much salary as your team of three or four people just for that one person. Right. And then, you know, I'll get on a plane and fly coach to show customers a product. So you can't afford, they can't afford employees, but we will go to bat for a company Hmm. and help them go to market in return for revenue share and a very small percentage of equity, which protects us in the event of an acquisition. Because it's probably going to be a five-year mission to help a company become profitable. Mm. And if they're acquired before profitability occurs, you don't recover your revenue investment. So we'll do it at risk. Yeah. And we know all the customers. I can pick up a phone and yeah. call these companies directly and probably won't get voicemail and say, I have something interesting. I'll be in Singapore in two weeks. Can I show you something? And so going to market... It's not a, uh, we're not an equity partner where we just give companies money and let them spend it with guidance. We'll give them actual assistance. And that is, I'll write well, I'll create marketing stories, yeah. I'll create success stories, right. I'll go to the customer, I'll go to the user groups. And for someone with a, a skill set like that, they probably couldn't afford them as an employee. Yeah. So that's why we do it at risk and do it with an equity stake. Because the equity stake helps, as I said, it helps recover the investment in the event of an acquisition. Otherwise, you're cashing out Apple stock to break even. (laughs) That's no no good. No. There's opportunity risk there. (laughs) Yeah. If you're going to do it to break even, you might not want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do something else. So this is an amazing story of this. It's all accidental. Did we talk about that again? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So stay curious. That's the hard part. Why is that hard? Uh, Well, in practical terms, what tends to happen is people get a job and then they borrow money to pay for things that they need, you know, a house and a car and stuff. And then if they're good at it, they get elevated and get more money to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But if you're not careful and you keep borrowing money to buy things as you work your way up, um, you no longer can say no to things that aren't interesting. And you you actually have to stop being curious. Yeah, that's interesting. Because you can't afford to be curious. Yeah. You have to stay laser focused on the thing that that pays the bills, that pays the uh, borrowed money back. So you can't be curious. Yeah. It's a, it's a terrible trap. So if you are advising a 20-something-year-old person today, I mean, that's a great message, but what beyond, like, if you were to lay some, like a, a light agenda out in front of them about how to do that, because, and maybe this is the wrong audience to pick because they may they likely have debt already from going to school. Well, but if they have kids that want to go and study architecture. There you go. Okay. So because the value of staying curious means you get to choose what you want to do when you want to do it. You get to scratch that itch when if it everything is appropriate, right? You you have the luxury mm. of being able to do that. That is a luxurious position because I think it's the scarce position. The luxury not- of being able to say no, Evan. Mm. 
because um, when you say yes, you really, really, really have to focus. You yeah. have to say yes carefully. Yeah. For a young person, I would say start early college, learn to use your tools. If you if you if you aspire to become an architect or study architecture, go to early college, do your architectural technology course. It's like two years. Yeah. Graduate with no debt from high school, probably early, and start college studying something else and then get a job part-time in an architecture firm so that you have enough time but not too much time free yeah. right yeah, yeah. If, if too much free time it's uh you end up getting into trouble so <laughs> yeah so work for a firm learn how to show up and then after you graduate go get your master's degree in architecture and it's i think it architecture school you know the five-year path it's five years of it's it's too much they don't start, you know, every design starts in a spreadsheet, and they don't teach that at architecture school. There's a budget, there's constraints, there's a site. Yeah. Um, there's constraints. And knowing what's, the metaphor for me is like, look in the fridge before you make dinner. You should probably know what your client's constraints are before you start designing. They're going to have a program. They have a, and that's a spreadsheet. It's not even a sketch. Right. Um, Absolutely. So learning how to do that as early as possible sets you up for being able to say no. You don't have to borrow, if you haven't borrowed money, when you graduate, you don't have to take the job with a company that, for the person that you, that, that is maybe a terrible boss and the, and the company that you don't like showing up for. You can go lean. When you, when a student borrows fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year for five years, that's right. an irrecoverable debt. You can yeah. never even pay off the interest. Right. And that kind of crazy money, if you didn't, if you, it, I don't know that there's any job that you, there's, you could work any job and not go to college and live at home, work in a coffee shop, 15 bucks an hour, 30,000 a year, put as much away as you can. In five years, you graduate, you, in five years, you have 100K. Invest that money at the age of 22, 24. I don't know how you could do better borrowing money to go to architecture school and then having to pay $1,000 a month in interest for the rest of your life. So when I think about architecture, capital A architecture, working in a firm and how long it takes to work your way up a, a ladder and how long it takes just to become a good architect. Do you think yeah. a lot of that has to do with not doing what you just talked about? Because because so myself included, mm. went into it at such a young age, you are learning by doing the whole time. And I don't even feel like, like I got licensed at 40, right? right? I did not get licensed right out of school, which made it a lot harder to get licensed with four kids. Right, and, right, right. But at the same time, uh, and this has been a conversation on my other ArcaSpeak podcast, right? My, my partner on that podcast also got licensed, I think, at 45. And it was just, we never felt ready. There was definitely like this, this, this thing in our brain that was saying, you're not good enough to be an architect yet. Oh, and right. because it takes, there's, there's, there's definitely a deliberate part of that in corporate architecture, which is like, just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep chugging along, pay your dues, do all the things just like I did back in the day. But then there's this alternative that you just proposed, which was learn the business, then learn what art, learn yeah, what the constraints that. are. And because most people don't do that. And, and I feel like, like this, because most people don't do that, we're in the situation. So part of learning how to do something at university and this was at seminary, this was at architecture school, which actually I thought architecture school would be more rigorous in terms of intellectual rigor. And they it's both hard have their work rigor. 
<laughs> it's time-wise hard. Like by Monday, I want three yes. scale models. I want nine drawings. Yeah. I want this many parties. Yeah. Seminary was more rigorous from a from a like a studying and uh, from learning. a paper writing standpoint. Yeah. We would have fifty-page thought papers due at the end of semesters right. and philosophy courses and things. And then when I get to architecture school, I thought, oh my gosh, this is like uh, this is going to be so much more rigorous. And we had five-page thought papers. Due. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of technical drawing. There's there's technical things that you have to do, but um, it was critical thinking, but manifested in different ways. It was drawings as hard. and model making and te- like technical and bad drawings ability. with a good presentation. You probably would do better. Learn how to be a good talker. I we had a project. <laughs> so I was working for this engineering firm, learning the value of how you are helping the customer solve the problem in a way that gives them an interesting journey. Carlton Burton. Burton Engineering, Charlotte, North Carolina. I'll still have dinner with Carlton at Christmas this year, and I'll still tell him, no, you get next year. I'm getting this year. <laughs> and uh, we'll catch up. He taps me on the shoulder one day in South Park and says, uh, I need that drawing for that project. And I said, what are you talking about? He, and he rattled it off again. I said, you didn't ask me to do that. And he went, what? And I was like, oh, shit. He goes, okay, grab that roll of drawings. Come with me. So I just grabbed a random roll of drawings and a roll of trace, and I'm following Carlton. We went all the way up to the top of the nation's bank building, and Carlton said something like, oh, you're going to love it. This is great. It was some site project. I don't know what he's doing. I opened the roll of drawings, and he's like, Phil, this isn't the right project. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And he goes, all right, look, anyway, here's what we're going to do. And he takes a roll of trace over the site plan. He starts sketching it up, and the client went, that's going to be great. Let's do that. And we walked out and Carlton kind of punched me in the arm. He goes, ah, there you go. (laughs) And I learned in the moment, it's like, you can give the customer a polite experience. You can communicate them. The drawing is just the artifact for the bureaucracy. But actually showing the customer what you're going to do and why is the journey. And that's what they want. They want to understand why you make certain decisions. And that's what he did. Yeah. And also being able to think on your feet because you can't not show up. So you can't call the customer and say, oh, yeah, we forgot to do that. Uh, I'll see you next week because yeah. you'll, uh, you'll lose your client real fast. One of my favorite people ever to work with was a lighting designer, John Lomelli. He's 85 now, 90 maybe. Uh, I mean, and this was, this was not that long ago. He was probably 80 when he would do this. And he would show up in, in the office. He would open up. He always had his shoulder bag and he would open it up and he would pull out a blank stack of you know 10 pieces of eight and a half by 11 Mm. and he would pull out his little pencil case and he'd have a couple of highlighters like yellow yellow pencils and because he's a lighting designer so he would always you know shade Mm. his drawings and he would he'd pull out his lead holder right because he always drew with a lead holder and the whole time we were having a conversation about the project and about the lighting, he was just sketching it right in front of you. Right. That was the communication. And and why is he my favorite person to work with on a project? That's why. And it was it was just that experience for me as a professional. The client never even got to experience that. It was just me and him sitting at a conference room table, figuring and, it out, figuring it out. And he was a lefty. And I, and I was, I just loved to watch him draw, mm. you know, and, and because he drew differently than I did. Being a lefty, he's always concerned about, you know, smudging the, the pencil right, lead right, on right. the paper. And, and so he would hold, he never drew in a notebook. It was always on these sheets. Why? Because he just slid them over at the end. He said, those are yours. 
And I have this stack of John Lamelli drawings that of were artifacts. just artifacts. And it was just the thought process. It was the conversation. And I felt like those were gold. Yeah, I think for the customer, it's an, it's an imposition to say this is the design. There's lots of ways you can do things. And if you just impose the design on them, they're going to go, well, why can't this go here? And why doesn't this go here? It's all product of function. Well, and then you have to explain it. You have like, to explain it. But if you take everything. them along on the journey... Yeah. At those key moments, I think it's more interesting for them. And ultimately, buildings are kind of like, buildings are commodity. But that journey, that experience, knowing why certain things are a certain way, why decisions were made, that's what the customer wants. I agree. And I think it goes beyond the project at some point where the story that they have in their mind lives on because they get to tell it to other people that go into that space with them later on. And that becomes the story of that project as it, after it leaves me and just right. goes to them. By creating those memories throughout the design process, they live on beyond handing over the keys, right? And people come into the lobby or they point at a thing, hey, you know why that's like that? And uh, to me, that's some of the most successful parts of architecture and no one ever gets to see that. You actually have to continue how, to experience. why certain decisions were made yeah. along the way. Yeah, and they get to tell that story. And they get to proliferate it beyond that time period that we had together. It, it continues to live beyond that. I love that about architecture. Well, I think if you're a young person and you start becoming exposed to that early on, it'll probably make architecture school more difficult later. You know, if you're too, um, if design becomes too much a product of function, if you get into your graduate program, if you're too, and you're, yeah, <laughs> you know, too practical, yeah, yeah, maybe too practical, <laughs> and you might be frustrated by the, you know, if the first year grad students who are still making blobs and you're trying to make decisions, right? But um, it, the other thing is, small firms, you'll have to do everything. Yeah, I need you to update the web page. I need you to figure out why this network isn't responding. I need you to you gotta mix drive this the animation. Here. You got to, yeah, you got to do it all. But that puts you on a track of success that's, you're not going to get that, I don't know, if you graduate from the regular program and you go to work for a firm that's a large firm, they have people that drive things. They have people that yes. do post-production on renderings. There's people that do specific things. Yeah. And you're just not going to get uh, Scott Adams, uh, the guy that did Dilbert. He, yeah. he calls it a talent stack. There's a great book um, called uh, Win Bigly. It's like how to fail at everything but still succeed. And the idea is that if you have a talent stack where you can do a lot of things pretty well, yeah. you'll have an advantage over all of the people that can do one thing really great. And so, you know, accidentally going to seminary meant reading a lot of philosophy and reading a lot of ideas of how people are motivated. Um, in the communications department, we were still mixing physical media. So it was videotape and audio tape. But then you learn this analog process that transfers to digital. So now I'm like, I use Camtasia because it's a pretty easy tool when I have to mix video. But then nothing's unfamiliar. It's not a surprise. If I, at seminary, you had to do a lot of dissertations. You had to do a lot of discussions, debates. So now, as much as I got out of seminary, and said, I don't want to tell people how to live. I'm, that's way beyond me. But then you get in the software space and you realize, oh, you're trying to convince people on why they should change behavior and live a certain way. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The irony the doesn't escape. Yeah. Yeah. But the psychology of, of why people want to change behavior and trying to find what is the, where's the critical mass and why this is better for you in terms of 
Like I saw, when, I wasn't sure if Revit as a company would survive. And the first big trip we took, uh, it was probably either Singapore or it was probably Auckland, New Zealand. And there was a builder show. This would have been early 2001. And everybody had their wares out. It was a, yeah, it was a builder construction software thing at the, in, uh, at the race course in Auckland. And um, there was a row of people. I think Archicab was there. Probably Autodesk was there. A row of technologies. And two university students were looking at Revit. And I was just so happy and probably way naive about this whole industry and software space. You know, I just wanted Revit to succeed. I didn't know Revit was going to get acquired. And now it's like, I wanted to use Revit at the time because why do I have to use AutoCAD? Why do I have to use MicroStation? I want to use the tool that I like. And now I hear people say, you know, I have to use Revit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. I can't use full this other circle. thing. Yes, yeah, full circle. Right. And these two students were looking at Revit and one said, why do we want to learn how to use this? When we graduate, people are going to pay us to use AutoCAD because they were still in school. And his associate said, if we learn how to use Revit, we can drink beer on Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> incentives and Evan I thought you know what it's not about the architecture yeah it's about the life afforded can you have a drink with an evening yeah with a friend after work can you have an interesting discussion it really affords you an interesting life yeah and so if you have tools that allow you the time to enjoy the things that you do with your tools that's a pretty good gig it's not about Revit it's about the time that you have left over having used Revit or whatever tool it is. I've talked with Roderick Bates at Enscape about uh, just the idea of a rendering tool, which used to be post-production. That was what people got at the end of DD to now using it as a decision-making tool in the Mm -hmm. design process. And How crazy is that? It's crazy. And and to think about it from a, you know somebody who's lived through the various stages of technology to say, you know, we talked about this inclusion in the process from a client's perspective and the experience that they want out mm. of that. A tool like that gives just brings joy to a client. When you can hand them the mouse, you can say it works like this, and then they can actually do it. They don't have to be a technical operator at the highest level to navigate their way through a project, or they don't have to just be uh, the the victim of a presentation either, right? They actually can drive it and look where they want is transformative. Is that something that you saw in a product like that early or was it more of just like, wow, this is saving me a ton of time? Or Yeah, so I I downloaded Enscape, opened it up, was blown away by its immediacy, right? So they say you can have pick two or three, fast, easy, and cheap. Yeah. Enscape was fast, it was inexpensive, it was easy to use, and the results were really compelling. So I think there's an artifact that occurs in architecture or or maybe in art in general. Um, at the point of performance, there has to be an emotional response. Yeah. And if you just show the cl- if you show the client sheet music, all the way, all the way, all the they way, don't and they know keep how to read approving sheet music, sheet music yeah. and then at the end you perform it, and they go, "Did I pay for this?" It's right. like, "Oh no, I showed you the sheet music." So there's, I showed, uh, I showed Enscape to the youngest. Jasper was probably 14 at the time. And I said, what do you think? And he said, I guess it's okay. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, this is so <laughs> much you know better than been? rendering. And he said, what's rendering? Yeah. And it occurred to me that he'd grown up playing Minecraft. Right. There's this idea of stopping to do another thing. You nope. just always experience it in 3D. Yeah. So here I am, you know, in this little Revit, Revit sample project in, inside of Enscape. Yeah. And I said, well, let me show you. Open up the render window, medium, 
probably medium quality, hit the render button, and you know, the window goes black. And it says estimating time remaining. And after 10 seconds, he said, well, this sucks. Why are you doing it? And I said, this is rendering. And he goes like, why would anyone do this? And I said, because that's how you have to do it. And the idea of being able to see it concurrently, that was a kind of a very Revit thing. The idea that information in Revit was always concurrent. I yeah. could take something out of a schedule and it would come out of an elevation. Yeah. So with Enscape, rendering was for people that could model. Actually, rendering was for people that could render. It's highly specialized. Yes. And it was typically an artifact after you'd come through some milestones. It was a completely separate channel of expertise. Oh, it was a separate person, probably. Yes. Yeah. And so the, the, the dysfunction or the disconnect I saw was that the client would sign off emotionally on plan sections and elevations. And then when you would take all of those and create an artifact, you know, then at that point from all of these 2D drawings, you would do effectively projection hand drafting to create a rendering. And they would go, I don't know. Whereas with Revit, you could show them at least a perspective right at the beginning because the perspective was concurrent to the plan sections and elevations. With Enscape, you can show them a rendering from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and the emotional impact, even though the design at that stage is very lightweight geometrically, yeah. there's not a lot of detail, but there's an emotional impact with regard to lighting. Ambient light and artificial lighting, it's like key. Yeah. And, and so I think what Enscape also did, and this is typically any... Any technology that kind of becomes viral is rendering tools are built for people that render. Enscape was designed for people that don't render. Yes. Democratizes but, visualization to some, right. an operator. So early on, there were a couple of large firms that I showed Enscape tool that came back with, oh, we showed it to our, our Macs team and we can't use it. It doesn't work with Macs. And then I realized... That's not the audience. Yeah. Yeah. So... Because I could also do marketing stories, I would seed Enscape in companies that I knew they competed with and then do a success story. And then I would get a phone call that said, you know, you bastard, I need a quote for 10 seats. <laughs> <laughs> your workarounds. Because, Back yeah, to workarounds. The workaround is show your competition. Because the rendering team, and maybe at first the rendering team is kind of threatened that this other democratizing tool comes along. But then they realize, oh, my goodness, thank goodness, I don't have to do all of these numbnut I things. I can work on more challenging things. Yeah, because they're not Absolutely. going away. If you're doing big projects, if you're they doing— They get to work on better stuff. You're, you're the guy that's created the visualizations for the billion-dollar football stadium. Right. And now you can focus on that and right. not doing the, the renderings one, yeah. that I just need for today. Yes. So where I think it's going to get interesting is— if Enscape had created another rendering tool for people that render, they will be fighting within an existing kind of market. Yeah. But they created a tool for people that don't render. However, it's for people that model. And what the transition, where the, the transition is occurring now is there are rendering tools for people that don't even model. There's mm. rendering tools that for people that can draw and describe. Yeah. And in the past, I don't think the transition is really that different. I call it AI- uh, there's two kinds. There's the carbon-based AI, which is the architectural intern, and there's a silicon-based AI, which is machine learning. I wanted to talk learning. to you about this because you wrote a LinkedIn post about this. Is AI the next architectural intern, I think was the title I of think it. it's part of it. I think yeah. they'll use in conjunction, you know, the, the two-hour-long conversation that you'd have with the design team and with the client to create a kind of visual pro forma and some, some design artifacts to get on a vector that's going to be worked on for two weeks. I'm seeing evidence of this, you know, the two-hour conversation is distilled into a, into a language model. It's a text description. And it doesn't create geometry, and probably for good, I don't want it to create geometry. <laughs> right. I want it to create an emotional metaphor. Right. 
and in some and and in some ways actually the way it deviates at times can yeah. create opportunities that you wouldn't have thought of oh. i don't know do you play any instruments yeah you guitar know when and bass okay yeah. so when you're noodling around on the guitar and all of a sudden you go happy oh my god happy little accident that is an amazing chord progression yeah and it was an accident yeah. and so ai has this kind of flexibility of where it creates totally. these accidents so I don't know that I need geometry. I just need a metaphor. Yeah. But the AI is the is the silicon-based architectural intern. And uh, I think Enscape will do a good job of addressing this. I think the the Veris team, uh, well, not Veris, what's the bigger company there um, with Bill and those guys? Evolve Lab. Yeah, Evolve. Yeah. I think they've done something so elegant because originally yeah. Veris was for people that model. There was a plug-in for SketchUp, Revit, Rhino. But with the web version... It's for people that just sketch you can and just describe. Throw a sketch in. Yeah, and I've taken photos of gin bottles and coffee cups and gotten emotional feedback from that. That well, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. My son and I. <laughs> there, there's one. I don't. I don't have a Varus license, but uh, there's one called Vizcom.ai, and it's mm -hmm. it's it's very similar in that way. Where it's like he he is given me these very rudimentary drawings that he's he, he sorry if he listened to this he would not agree, but these very detailed. <laughs> highly stylized drawings of like supercars and things right. like that. And I take a photo of it with my iPhone. I throw it on, into this interface and he writes a description. And I I've talked about this on recent episodes, just, just in that the pure joy that surprised me. He experiences when that car shows up on the screen as a fully rendered two dimensional granted yeah. right image Right. I designed that, is what he says. Yeah. I designed, mom, look, I designed when this car. When you look close, it's smudgy. But so is an early sketch. You haven't resolved all of that. There's smudginess. The smudginess is okay. It, but to, there ha it, totally. And to me, it, that excitement that I see in him, yeah. I wish I could have more people in our industry experience that on a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis in the tools that they use. Professional tools. These are professional tools. This is the next generation of professional tools. And I think it's it's really it's fun to watch because it reminds me of the first time I used whatever app that I, I experienced that with, right? Maybe it was Bryce 3D back in the day and generating a landscape or some mm. crazy Kai's Power Tools Photoshop plugin or something like that where it was just like, you can bevel this text and make have sh shiny highlights and all that stuff. Like that to me was just like, I loved that kind of stuff. Or the first time I blew something up in 3D Studio back in the day, right? <laughs> the, the the AI renderings, the thing. If I had if I had to model that or find someone who could model that, I think it's probably two weeks of full time yeah. work to get to that and level of expensive. emotional feedback. Yeah, and then it's a throwaway. It's like okay, well that's one, but I need about twenty of these. Right. So I was that's ninety percent of the architectural design process. You just want to get on way. vector with the client, like right. what. Where are we? What do you like? Uh, yeah. If it's a if it if it's a commercial project, I think it's one level of an emotional spot response. But if it's a if it's where they're going to live, it's another level of emotional response. Like this is it's something that appeals to them at a at a subconscious level. And this engineering, no, no, uh, it was an interiors firm, and they would talk with the customer, and then they would start to think in terms of metaphor of like, well, what kind of architect already works that way? And they would just do Google, Pinterest image searches based on this architect yes. in order to then reiterate this in the context of this customer's project. And so we did that we did an experiment. Basically, uh, we, we were probably using Midjourney at the time, and the text description was referencing the kind of architects that would, yeah. or the kinds of designers that would create. 
And they were like, well, this is better for us because we're getting something closer without having to do image searches that already exist. So I think from that standpoint and the amount of set dressing that automatically occurs based on your text prompt, Absolutely. that's a lot of manual effort to put the flowers on the table in the right spot. Like all of these little things that emotion, that you can emotionally respond to. Mid-journey, I think mid-journey is a good one. That's the one I see getting used a lot, stable diffusion. But Vera seems to be a little viral. It's so approachable. It's for people that don't model. Just yeah. sketch, take yeah. a photograph, and it gets you on a vector. And then you're going to have to be deliberate about the next step. But uh, that that inflection point, I think it's already here. People are just mm. going to expect that. And it's yeah. a faster way to search for images effectively. You yeah. know, you could look for images that do that. I agree. I agree. I don't know how it's going to go away. I don't either. Well, yeah. yeah, the toothpaste is out of the tube, as they say. It's not going back in. So but, I would hire yeah. an intern that could take a dis I'll still have a discussion. If I was if if I was an architect now, I would just hire an intern that could take a longer discussion and distill it into a text prompt. The value of an architect at those early stages is about that experience, but it's also about curating a level of taste for yeah. a lot of you know, right? And and to me, like that's what makes the difference between somebody who types in something they want to see the image generator generate versus actually curating the output and becoming really good at that. And I think that that is probably the shift in the education of an intern who could then drive that technology is we're going to use this tool to drive and develop our taste with our client and mm -hmm. get good at that. Like actually get really good at getting stuff out of it that is what you're actually looking for not just whatever the first response is based on a really simple prompt. But like this whole idea of prompt en engineering, right? It's kind of a dumb name for something that's actually really necessary. If you talk to someone in this, for two hours about a project and, and then ask them, what did I just say? Give me a one-minute synopsis. It's hard for some people to do that. Oh, yeah. But if you had someone who could distill a long conversation or take notes and then distill that note. I use Siri on the Mac to distill notes in order to create a text prompt. Yeah. And uh, I work, uh, work and am personal friends with an architect in Charlotte Studied at state. Now he's gone into the construction space. He's, he, he owns a contracting firm, but he does earnest design with a client before the architect gets involved. Mm. And then he'll do sketches. He'll get to the point. He'll probably actually he'll, he'll take his sketches, put them into SketchUp, mm -hmm. and then give it to someone else to do some renderings, and then get that back to the customer to get on a vector. And uh, I said, let me show you something. This thing called Varus. I said, give me one of your sketches. Yeah. Describe this. Yeah. project what's to me. the mood what's it going to be made of yeah where is it right so via siri put that into a text prompt and from my phone created four renderings and he was just blown away he's like and it actually it, it actually did the thing where it didn't exactly do what the sketch imposed it kind of deviated yeah he's like oh i like this one i hadn't thought about that yeah because there's that slider in there for like geometry retention yeah. right like respect my geometry or not yep. and and you can i like how that is a metaphor for where are you in the design process? It's like, it's, it's like- You can smudge. Uh, yeah, at, at the beginning, it's like, no, like the, let's just let's just go go crazy. And then the farther along you get, it's like respect it some more, respect it more. Now respect a, mostly, right? But at that point, I he can that. take something that is on vector with the customer's fiscal and emotional response and then begin in earnestness with, yes. I think, way more confidence. Right. So this guy's an architect who has his own construction firm 
who designs with a client, like that's that's a lot of value. Yes. That early. Hard, you know, otherwise if you have to hire people to do each of these things. Right. Yeah. It's be it's a new game, right? Yeah. I, I feel like if you knowing what you know now, we're gonna start a firm. So we've given advice to the students about how to maybe plan their career. Yeah. But if you're gonna give advice to someone who's interested in starting a, a small You're ready to fire the firm boutique, that you work for yes, and go yes, into business. Because yourself. you are sick and tired of the way that they do things and you're gonna do it your way. So it, yeah, the grass is gonna look really green. You probably want to transition. You don't just want to, unless you get let go. You're not going to cut, yeah, cut it off. You're, you're not going to cut gonna it off. You're going to do these two, you're going to side y hustle. Y yeah. <laughs> you're going to do what Frank Wright did, right? Yeah. A couple of client projects on the side yeah. until you get fired For by your parents Sullivan. first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that you're going to have to get to know yourself in some, I think you're going to, you should subject yourself to some uh, personality tests because part of being in business is chasing the customer for money. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that artists, I think- Are good at that. I don't know that they're good at that. Yeah, I don't think, I think some artists are conflict avoidant. I don't think it's a coincidence there's so many acronym firms with three or four letters in them because somebody was probably a great designer. Someone's a project somebody's manager. probably managing yeah. the business and someone's probably chasing the money. You should probably partner with somebody who's comfortable being half asshole sometimes. It's yeah. so like saying, I'm gonna have to put a lock on your project until you pay me. That's part of it. If, yeah. If, yeah. I, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because I was thinking the other, I, I'm thinking the other part of that equation, which is like, wow, the tools are way different nowadays. If I was going to start something now, I would approach it very differently. But what you're talking about is actually way more fundamental to the, <laughs> to the business. It's like someone who will pick up the phone and go, you owe us money. Do I have to come by? Hey, let's chat. You owe us money. I need to check today. Because if you don't do that, you're cashing out your own funds to pay your staff, right. a team of, I don't know that you need that many people. If you had, or one of the business partners, somebody who's happily chased the money and somebody who's happy to chase the customer to, to do the next project, and then maybe one or two technical people. But even now, you can almost hire them on demand. There's, I mean, the technology allows you, imagine not yeah. having to kick the project off and then hand it to people to do the documentation. We will actually do work. We get designs from architects they love the design process, but then getting it from that preliminary stage to starting construction documents or something that's late design development, where it's a really good, a, a really fit Revit model. They're just not good at that, doing it quickly and well. And so they'll hand us, in some cases, hand sketches or photographs of hand sketches with a scale. Yeah. And we'll mock that up in Revit and then they get it back. So they're focused on getting the project secure with the customer, and then the last mile of design documentation and instructions based on what their local city or municipality requires from them. And the piece in the middle, which is get it to the point where I can start coordinating the design and find out where the gotchas are. Because we'll find lots of design problems um, in sketches where things don't align and we don't change it. We just point them out and go, where would you like the core to go? Should we move the upstairs core over or move the downstairs core over? And we get to work with designers who do just extraordinary work and their teams of one or two. It's, it's, I think it's probably harder for the young people who, if they want to get to that stage of completion of being able to sign, seal, and deliver drawings, you almost have to go to work for a larger firm at that point because they have the overhead to absorb 
uh, your lack of return on investment early on, right? Yeah, They're going to work with right. you to get to that three to five year period to where you're paying back the investment. Yeah, you could go to lunch and decide I'm going to start a firm with someone and you need a laptop and some software. Yeah. I don't know that you even need office space. No. If you have a customer who said, <laughs> if you have a customer who goes, look, I love working with you guys. If you ever went out on your own, call me. You're probably golden at that point. The hard part that I've seen is a firm would, they'll get that first project and then they start hiring people and then it starts to get quiet and there's a moral obligation with artists that, you know, this person's starting a family and this person's trying to buy a house and you have all of, you know that these people have lives and you can't just let them go, but you don't have another project coming in and something comes in that you really don't care about that project type, you say yes. but you say yes yeah. to keep everybody fed and uh, it'll never happen again. But then it happens again and again and again. And the next thing, you're doing side adapts for car dealerships or it's something that you don't It's not normally like this, about. is what they say when the new person shows up. It's not normally, and then I know you, you find don't, out. It's, you don't like doing transportation hubs and, and warehouses, but we have this warehouse It's project. always like this, yeah. Well, if you're only one or two people, three people, and you can stay lean between projects you don't care about, it's okay. Yeah. Because you've done really well with a few people, and you've got... You've got a bit of a fun set up to then go and find the next project that you care about. And now you've, def now you've defined yourself by that kind of project and you've done really exquisite work. And now the customers start finding you. They want to know who designed that. I want one of those. It's interesting to me is the way if that... If you can wait and say no, that's the hard part. The way you just wrap that up completely aligns with the advice we gave earlier, you gave earlier, about how to make it so that you have that luxury later in life by not being in debt, <laughs> right? Because yeah. you, these two things actually work really well together, but, but you, one does come before the other, right? You, you have to be set up to be in a position where you, again, have the ability to say no to things yeah. so that you can really do the things you care about with the ones that you say yes Every, to. Everyone below the king says yes. <laughs> the king gets to say no. And... um if you don't want to be, man, if you've got, you know, I mean, simple things. We as artists and architects, we like to have nice things, but don't buy a new car. Yeah. Not out of college. Um, this, as soon as you can stop renting, if it makes sense. As soon as you can not live in the big expensive city, but live on the outskirts yeah. where things aren't as expensive. It just gives you so much freedom and flexibility. As much money as you spend on the things that you like. Buy the stock of the company that makes the thing that you like. Mm. So had you bought the $400 iPod when they first came out and you bought $400 in Apple stock, if you spend $3,000 a year on Apple on Autodesk software, buy $3,000 a year in Autodesk stock. Mm. If you buy $3,000 in Adobe software, buy $3,000 in Adobe stock. And your portfolio of technologies that you use as tools to make things right. will become more valuable than the tool that you bought to make the thing. Like mm. it'll, it would, I think the example I, I like to give is the, mentioned this before, the $400 iPod. Uh, if you had $400 in, in effectively $400 in Apple stock in 2001, it would be worth well over a hundred grand now. And that gives you a lot of ability to say no. You've got a buffer there. Yeah. So yeah, always... I'm not a, I don't think, I, I've, I've done well investing in, in technology markets, but the basic rule was buy things that I understand and buy things from companies that make products that I buy. So Autodesk, Apple, Adobe, Google, NVIDIA. If you buy 
computers with NVIDIA graphic cards because you like that computer, you probably want to go out and buy as much, you know, your $2,000, $3,000 workstation, buy that much in NVIDIA stock. That's, I like that. That's, that's a good rule of thumb, and it's easy to, could be easy to track that. It'd be hard to do, I think, for a lot of people. Like, it's basically doubling your spending every year, but, but if you're resourceful, that pays dividends. It might be hard the first time, but if yeah. you haven't bought a new car, you got money left over. Yeah, I don't know. Yep. I don't have a car with less than 150,000 miles on it because... The freedom of not having a car payment? Oh, it's huge. I, sh I shouldn't even talk about this because I'm on the cusp of buying a new car Are right you? now, which I've never <laughs> bought a new car in, geez, 20, 30 years, but I'm about to buy a new car. Um, but I wouldn't... If you're going to buy the new iPhone, put $1,000 in Apple stock. Because what you're buying is a, it's kind of a consumable in a way. You're buying sure. something that's going to run out of goodness in three to five years. But the company that makes it, it's an, it's an enormously useful ecosystem. And it's hard to compete with ecosystems. So that's mm -hmm. why I like Autodesk. That's why I like Apple. That's why I like NVIDIA. NVIDIA has a huge ecosystem of developers that, yeah. that design things that run on their graphic cards. And I mean, it kind of took off with uh, currency mining and now it seems to be transitioning to language models and... Yeah. Yeah. Right, with GPUs, yeah. But I don't know who else has a better ecosystem. So if you don't... Yeah, if you just keep buying the thing, it's easy for artists to spend money on things that are consumables. I actually... So Autodesk, Adobe, NVIDIA, Google, Apple... If you put Amazon, uh, Amazon could be another one, particularly when you can't go out and shop, right? If you looked at those four or five companies and said, okay, just a thousand dollars in those companies 10 years ago, what yeah. it would be worth oh, now. Yeah. Yeah. And but that, I think the thinking that now, gives you the freedom to say no and to be curious. Yeah. The thinking now is, well, they're so expensive. They can't possibly do that again. And yet and they do. Are we going to go away from screens? Is technology going to continue to compress? Media delivery. Yeah, if screens go away, we have bigger problems. Hmm. But um, I think the ability for the ability we have right now to find out information on demand has its pluses and minuses. I mean, it, you know, it's a way to keep yourself anxious all the time if you keep scrolling through media and yes. scrolling through news. Right. But if you need to find out something quickly and get an answer, a, a context-specific answer, it's trivial now. So I don't think that's going away. The right. desire, if I want to know something quickly or at least get on a vector. And those companies seem to make tools that are ecosystems around finding out things quickly. Or, or I would put it this way, Evan. I invest in companies that make t uh, tools, not toys. So if I'm buying a thing to then use it to make something else, that's a tool. Yeah. It's not just, a, it's not just a, something that's being consumed as a game or an entertainment. But if I'm buying it to make a movie or if I'm buying it to make a building... Yeah, then it's a then it's a tool. There's the other thing is you know because architecture school, if, I don't even think professional practice. It's it's more about the bureaucracy of practice. It's not about like how do you manage your personal finances. You need a good accountant. What's if you buy a phone for yourself as a private person and you save ten percent of what you make, you have to make ten grand to buy a phone for a thousand dollars. If you buy a phone for yourself and you've got a side hustle as a designer, that's now an expense to the business. Why would you ever buy a, why would you ever not have a business? Otherwise things are too expensive. The mile that you drive to meet with a customer versus the mile you drive to, yeah, for your own use. You just wanna 
be able to deduct those things properly. The laptop that you buy, all of those advantages. So if you're in business now, you probably want to have a side hustle. And there's a certain amount of discipline that comes along with that yeah. to track those things so that you can legitimize all that at the end of the mm -hmm. year, which is, an, is another area of overhead that some people are just not willing to do, okay, I guess. Okay, so architecture but school should teach you to do that. Like if I have an expense, yeah. I take a photograph of it, right. I upload it to a Dropbox folder, and they stay in that folder until I put it in a spreadsheet, and then it goes into a different folder. So there's a way of tracking these. Right. Like just practical practical advice on like you don't have to buy expensive accounting software you probably have I mean, in my business we use something called harvest which is a way of tracking time and expenses and then we give it to an accountant we don't try to become accountant adam has his mba and he's probably smart enough to know not to be the account yes. i mean he's an accountant to the point but then we give it to the tax person and let them take it over they don't teach this at architecture school Again, it's that focus on when you go to school, you're thinking about it in terms of how will I use this as an employee versus how will I use this as an employer. And they don't want you to go fast at architecture school, right? It's every year you're there, you're going to spend more money. So they, I think in a way, university is incentivized to drag things out. Mm. I feel like this whole idea of systematizing things to make it easy to do these tracking along the way is a key component. And, and I, this is what project managers do really well in architecture firms, right? It's like you take care of it right then. And a designer on the, like that mindset, you know, in the quote unquote capital D designer world is like, it's messy, it's loose. We live in the chaos of it and it's fine. And those are very different mindsets. As a, somebody who's doing this podcast as a business, mm. when you talked about, it's like, I have a notion database and I get the receipt, I take a picture of it, it goes right into the cell and it's automatically calculating in, a right, in the right category. Why? Because if I don't do it like that, I won't do it at all. It has to be- yeah, you, I By doing that, it, you can forget about exactly. it. Exactly. It it, and, and so, and this goes back to running digital practice in a firm where you're trying to convince the, the audience at large in the firm to do things systematically or based on a standard and they see that as handcuffs. And it's like, no, it's freedom. It's freeing you up. It is freedom because you don't ever have to think about that again. You get to do better things. You get to do more important yeah, things, point, more valuable things. If you have to delegate, you don't have to hire. And if you accrue the debt along the way and then you have to do it all at the end. Oh, no, it's too complex. It's too, it, it's too big of a job <laughs> and you forget. just won't do it. Yeah. yeah, You can't do it. Right. So the end, so where I think where the industry has gone now is a lot of specialists that can work together on demand team comes together it's happened in the film and stage space yes uh yeah. where because major of motion picture or even better tv shows yeah. now they put teams together to do art direction set design set construction right. after the project they go away yeah. they're not employees and i can see architecture it certainly happened in the construction space where they've stopped employing people that do things and they hire them as subcontractors when the project comes together and they get the people that play well together and then they go away. But if you do good work, you come back together when the band's ready to play. Yeah. So that's where the, uh, that's the process. If you want to start your own business now, you don't go and rent office space. It's yeah. Like three-year lease. At, right. No, forget nope. that. No. Nope. Go lean. Yeah. And if the client has an office, you go there and you present the work. This is a great place to pause because at this point in the conversation, 
we really needed a break. So we'll pick back up right here in the next episode for part two. And remember, you can support what I'm doing here by subscribing to the show, both on YouTube and in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at trxl.co. Talk to you again soon. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co. And I'll talk to you again next week.